Respect. Sevome. Respeto. Spoštujmo. Respect words. Ithiki dimosiografia για την αντιμετώπιση της ρητορικής του μίσους. Ετικτικό νοβινάρστο προτι σοβραζνεμου γόβορου. Il potere delle parole. Respect for Worten, Respect for Menschen gegen Hassreden. A tisztelet hangján szólunk. Riportok, interjúk, tudósítások a gyűlöletbeszéd ellen. Mi becsüljük a másikat. Respect. Now, I am delighted to say that joining us on uh, this afternoon's edition of Respect Words is former junior minister with special responsibility for direct provision, uh, Senator Aon Oriadon. Good afternoon, uh, Aon. How are you? And welcome to Respect Words. Great to be here, Donny. It's great to talk to you. Aon, as I said, uh, you were a junior minister in the former government with special responsibility for direct provision. Now... I remember uh, an interview you gave in relation to specifically direct provision at the time, having visited some of the centres. To say you were not impressed with what you found, I think, would be an understatement, Ian. Yeah, I mean, I had a number of responsibilities in in that government. I had um, equality, uh, new communities, culture and the national drug strategy. So there was quite a lot going on at the same time. But under the new communities brief, it was was quite broad. We, We had the integration strategies, there was a lot that we had to be done there. We wanted to be proactive and positive. But the obvious um, issue that I, that I needed that needed to be addressed and was my responsibility to address was the issue of direct provision, which for those who don't understand it or aren't familiar with it, it's a system that was set up about 18 years ago in the year 2000 at the height of the of the uh, first wave, if you like, of, of asylum applications that were coming into Ireland. We had about 10,000 a year and a system was established in order to cope with it because the system wasn't coping with it called direct provision, which essentially meant that asylum seekers were housed in centres, 34 of them around the country. Um, I think uh, the idea was that it would be a short-term issue, the short-term solution that would be there for six months, and they wouldn't all be concentrated in Dublin. Um, so they are around the country, but of course, uh, typically when it comes to Ireland, we have a short-term solution and it turns into long-term policy. So um, you had asylum seekers who were uh, in various centres around the country for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. Now, it doesn't matter if you're living in the Gresham. If you're there for ten years, um, it's going to it's going to have a huge effect on you. So the amounts of uh, Supports were available were quite small. Um, the the social welfare uh, entitlements were were tiny. Uh, access to um, the local community was was restricted. You couldn't cook your own food. I think anybody would possibly accept possibly accept a system like this if it was for six months or or less than that. But the problem uh, was that children were growing up in the system. And I went round to about fifteen centres to as many of them as I possibly could do. I went ones in, in Limerick and in Mayo and in um, in, in various different parts of the country. And some centres were better than others, but some of them, you know, I could see myself, if I was an asylum seeker, possibly spending a few weeks there. A few of them I, I thought I might spend even a few months there. And there was one in particular I remember thinking I wouldn't I wouldn't spend a the night there. There was um, a corridor um, of single bed units that were separated by a curtain. Now, with the best will in the world, um, if you have come from a situation where you're seeking asylum, uh, there has to be an understanding in the system that it is quite likely you are uh, genuine, 
it's quite likely that you're fleeing from from torture, from violence, uh, from from sexual violence. Quite possible that you're traumatized. Um, my feeling is that the system doesn't recognise any of that. The, my feeling is the system assumes that the vast majority of people who are seeking asylum aren't genuine, and therefore they need to be treated in a, in in a manner that assumes they aren't genuine. And to have somebody in a system uh, where they could be a, a victim of violence, of torture, of rape, um, or have witnessed any of those things, to be housed somewhere where you have no access to counselling, no access to uh, to a, a compassionate understanding system, and to be there for literally years on end, and you can't even cook your own food, uh, is degrading and dehumanising. So um, you're handed this system, and as a junior minister, you're obviously you're, you're junior in the department, so you don't have necessarily the final say in a lot of things. And you're told to, cl- to clean up um, a system that's been there for 15 years to do it in 18 months. So I did my best, uh, and what we managed to achieve was we got 1,500 people who were long stay over three years. We got them out. Is it fair to say on that, uh, you know, you were making progress? Because I remember listening to you at the time, and, and I know we spoke several times since then, uh, but, you know, that you were making progress, and then all of a sudden, uh, for some, whether it was financial or whatever the reason, that the... Uh, the entirety of the proposals that you bought, brought to Cabinet were not enacted, and most of them are now sitting on a shelf gathering dust. Uh, well, I think it's easy for somebody in opposition to say that, that everything was fine once when we were there, and then once the government changed that nothing has happened. I don't think that would necessarily be fair. Um, we, what we did was we, we commissioned a, a report uh, that took nine months to get together, and we had a lot of people sitting around a table in order to get that report um, commissioned uh, and to get it finalised. And so, anybody who had any interest in the area was around the table. Um, there was one resignation from from the from the, the working group um, that has to be said, but everybody else stayed on board and then produced a report in July of 2015, uh, uh, which I felt, if it was implemented to the letter, would have vastly improved the circumstance. Now, it wasn't it wasn't going to abolish the system. It was going to vastly improve it so that we would have a recognition that it was a short-stay facility. We'd have a recognition that anybody over five years would have a fast track of their application so that there'd be nobody there more than five years. Um, very achievable stuff. And a lot of it was actually a massive amount of of compromise. So there were people who came into that, into that um, working group who had mandates a mandate from their own organization to abolish the system, who signed off on a document with the department officials that, that, that was going to achieve an awful less than that, but still was going to improve it. So there was risks on all sides, particularly for NGOs who are you know, in the, in the sphere and are, are, are trying to do their best and, and want to stand uh, for the right thing. And they taught when they signed off on this document, on this working group proposal with the departments, that that was it, that that was going to be implemented to, to the letter. What was really disappointing for me was that when the government did change and when I looked at the draft program for government I went searching for various different things obviously from drugs and from from equality issues and also for 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 direct provision and within the draft program for government which was sent around and everybody had a look at there was a line saying that they were going to fully implement the McMahon report because it had been uh, overseen by Judge Brian McMahon and I was delighted with that. I thought, well, I'll confirm this new government. They are, have looked at this report and they're going to fully implement it. The next week, the very next week, the actual program for government came out. And 
for people, I suppose maybe you might understand this, the Programme for Government is a very serious document. I know sometimes commentators don't think it is. It genuinely is. There are civil servants who, who, it's the Bible that the government lives by. If you've made a commitment and it's in the Programme for Government, it's something that's taken quite seriously by all departments. In the actual Programme for Government, that line had just been deleted. The line that had been in, uh, there the week previous had just gone. So the, so, so the commitment to implement the the, um, the McMahon report was gone, and I, I, I was pretty horrified by that. Now, having said that, uh, I, I had a number of meetings with the new Minister of State in the department, David Stanton. I, I, I'm quite happy to to stand over his bona fides on the issue. I know he's, deliver, he, he's um, got, gone to a lot of um, direct provision centres, excuse me, himself, uh, and that rate of uh, moving on from direct provision has has maintained those long stay numbers have actually maintained there are people more people drifting out of the system. I think part of the problem, if I'm honest, Donny, is that in the teeth of the issue of direct provision, trying to sort it out, came the housing crisis, and it is it can be difficult in in a housing crisis when the homelessness numbers are are shooting up. And uh, people are on the streets, and people are, are are visibly on the streets. For you within government, then to advocate for people who have a roof over their head, even if it's as dehumanising as as direct provision. And the solution that many people wanted was for the thing to be abolished, but you can't do that and put four thousand five hundred people on a housing waiting list somewhere in the country. So we did actually have, unfortunately. The issue of direct provision should really have been sorted out an awful lot long, uh, you know, a lot, lot earlier. When we when it finally came to tackle it, uh, the housing crisis made it more difficult because we were advocating for people who had a roof over their head. We were advocating for people who were getting three meals a day. We were advocating for people who, in some people's eyes, shouldn't have been here in the first place. And I think when you're in the in the teeth of a of an un, of working within an unpopular government whose poll rating is collapsing. When the housing crisis is getting worse, we didn't necessarily get um, a favourable response from from within government as to what we were trying to achieve. So we 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 had a lot of barriers, and it was more difficult to make the case in the media as well, because whereas sometimes it's easier when in a, in a time of economic buoyancy, there's a lot of money around the place, people are are willing to look at social uh, injustice in a different way. Not so much when you know. Uh, there's a lot of economic unhappiness. People are still traumatised from the crash. People are still only getting back on their feet. And then the, the housing issue um, smacks them in the face. And who you are on the radio advocating for uh, for people who, who have a form of housing. So uh, I know it's, it's extremely unfair that, that politics and, and media sometimes play off one vulnerable group against another. And we used to say to ourselves, it's funny how some people care only about homelessness whenever you talk about asylum seekers, but that's the reality of sometimes of uh, of of the of the sphere in which in which you work. But I did think we we achieved something, and I think we we raised the the profile of the issue, and I think things have genuinely improved for for people in the system. But as always, Donny, you can always do more. I, it's an interesting point, actually, on in relation to homelessness, and you, that you bring up because. I heard a very, very valid point actually made on this program recently that, you know, the Irish people are really now, maybe for the first time, they have heard about direct provision and, you know, it was something that kind of flitted in and out of the news or the media from time to time. and But it was okay because it affected those people that came from other countries. 
But now we see a situation where we have, you know, I think we're heading for four, for almost 4,000 children alone in what is, for all intents and purposes, direct provision as well. Because we're just, and I'm going to take both foreign nationals and we'd say, you know, Irish people as well. We're basically warehousing them in hotels and hubs or whatever you want to call it this week uh, because we have nowhere to actually put them to give them a key to their own door and a roof over their own head or their own roof over their own head. So now we're just warehousing people and for the first time maybe the Irish people through what they're seeing with the amount of people who are in, as I said, hotel accommodation or hubs are seeing what direct provision was like? Well, yeah, I, I think they're, they're they're very very reluctant to embrace a new system that is going to be, uh, you know, presented as short term, because they know what happens with short term solutions. You know, you go into any primary school in the country and you'll find a prefab. Well, actually, <laughs> if I do give ourselves some credit in terms of the Labour Party and what we did in government, there's actually less. Uh, uh, prefabs now than there was, but but be that as it may, um, you know, a number of years ago, you could go into any school in the country and, and find a, a prefab, and the, the school community would have been told that's a temporary, temporary uh, structure there that'll only be there for a year and a half. You'll get in your permanent building, and then 20 years later, you know, there's no sign of the permanent building, and that's why the reluctance to hopes came along because. You know, people said, well, I know you're telling me that this is a short-term solution, but look at direct provision and turn into long-term. So I think people are very, very wary of of things that are being presented as short-term solutions. Uh, I think it's really, really worrying, though, as well, to be honest, when we do play off one vulnerable group against another. And I do think it's, it's really, really uh, unfortunate when, you know, uh, my job was to advocate for people in dr- in, with, with drug addictions, people from the LGBT community, people with disabilities, people f- f- uh, from abroad who are living here. And whenever you were on the media talking about any of these vulnerable groups, somebody would inevitably text in and say, well, what about the homeless? Uh, or what about this other group? And I think when you're dealing with vulnerable groups, you, you shouldn't have to pick one over the other. Because if you were on the on the radio talking about a tax cut, nobody would ever text in and say, well, what about the homeless? It's as if, you know, if you're advocating for one vulnerable group, you should really be advocating for another. But if you're advocating for a tax cut, um, nobody ever seems to make the correlation between a tax cut and what and what that will do for uh, for services for vulnerable people. So, look, uh, issues arise um, within within politics and within government that that, that have to be addressed. It's, not, it's never the perfect time to to, to address them uh, often. But we're pretty proud of the work that we did. I, I, one thing I would say, though, about the political system, uh, and this is for all political parties, the pressure that I came under as a Minister of State, and the pressure that the government came under, which I was a member of, was not that we were being too generous, was not that we were being uh, too humane. Um, the pressure that we that we came under from all political parties is that we weren't being humane enough. There wasn't, if, if we had the debate on direct provision in, in the Dáil or in the Shannon, there was nobody who stood up and said, uh, you know, outrageously anti-immigrant or anti-refugee or anti-asylum seeker things, asylum seeker things, and I think that's to our credit. I mean, you will not find a political party, a mainstream political party in Ireland, be it Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael or Labour or Sinn Féin or the Greens or anybody, um, who will 
go on an anti-immigrant ticket at election time. You will find individual politicians, you will find individual councillors, you'll find individual TDs, but you won't find on the policy platform of any main political party in Ireland anything about immigration, really. And I think that's to our credit. So when it comes to general election time in any other European country, immigration always comes up. Look at what happened in Britain, Germany, Austria, um, France, Italy. Immigration is a hot topic at every single general election, not in Ireland. And I think that's to our credit. And I think it's to the credit of of, of members of political parties, regardless of who they are in, in the Oireachtas, because I, I found that quite comforting, that at least I wasn't in the, the Dáil or Shannon trying to improve the system and getting a lot of flack from people saying that it, didn't, it should be tougher. Yeah, and of course that brings me very uh, nicely on to, uh, I suppose, the second real part of, the, of what I want to talk to you about today, which is the... Some people would describe it as the, the the rise of the right. I would nearly argue that it's the rise of fascism throughout Europe. And in fact, we know as well we can, if you want to, if you if you want to really extrapolate it out, you could say in the the leader of the free world hasn't exactly embraced uh, multiculturalism either. What he says is very dangerous, uh, and what he says is is quite deliberate. Um, you know, it's very simple to in in a country which has has difficulties to to point at a vulnerable group. And what what Donald Trump has managed to do is to say, well, you know, the the solution to all of our ills is to have a ban on certain people from certain countries coming here. Uh, that his rhetoric about illegal immigrants and crime is is quite disturbing. Um, but he he knows what he's doing, and he knows the people he's trying to trying to appeal to, uh, and it's working for him in, in many respects. Um, so it's funny, there's about 1.5 million Americans have been killed by firearms since 1968. About five have been been killed by refugees. But rather than tackling firearms, he's put a blanket ban on all refugees from, from all over the world. And what I think is particularly galling, and this is why I established with others the Irish Stand movement around St. Patrick's Day in New York, every St. Patrick's Day, is a number of Irish-American names that are in that administration who will wear the green, but on their green... Um, you know, ties and jackets and, and, and skirts and tops and whatever around St. Patrick's Day and yet stand over blatantly anti-immigrant rhetoric and, and policies because the Irish were once in the very same situation. The Irish were once at the very bottom of the social ladder. We were the ones who were, you know, suffered religious discrimination because the vast majority of those immigrants from Ireland were, were, were Catholic. I mean, when, when JFK ran in 1960, he had to overcome an awful lot of anti-Catholic sentiments. You know, uh, we, we, we were the Muslims uh, of the of the 40s and 50s. We were the Mexicans of the 20s and 30s. So you would imagine that Irish-Americans would have an awful lot more sympathy for for the plight of, uh, of immigrants today. Across Europe, similarly, I mean, Brexit, we see what what can happen when it's a, a small group of narrow-minded, uh, far-right extremists within the within the Conservative Party can change change Europe, and and they succeeded. And you you now you now have effectively neo-Nazi parties um, gaining popularity, uh, winning elections, getting into government. I mean, there's a, a effectively a neo-Nazi um, far-right presidential candidate who got 49% of the vote in Austria, of all places. And you'd assume Austria, having been the birthplace of Hitler, would be a little bit sensitive as to going back to those days. But no, uh, and and the rise of the of, of right-wing populism is something that we're just going to have to come to terms with and understand rather than just dismiss it, because... 
if we dismiss it, well, then we're not understanding the, the, the reasons as to why people are, are voting this way. And I think there, there's a number of reasons for it. The economic collapse, obviously, the, the lack of trust in institutions, the assumption that the, the European project is a failure and, and allowed the economic collapse, collapse to take place. And that, um, combined with the, with the migration crisis, the refugee crisis, um, has allowed far-right anti-establishment um, rhetoric to 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 get more popular so you are poor not because of the the you know the 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 failures of capitalism you're you're poor because of the failures of of the establishment uh, and the establishments you know are now letting in a huge number of of migrants and refugees and uh, and only by voting for me and my very simple solutions can can this get better um and that's really really troubling um and parties like my own across Europe are are really failing to grapple with this issue and I can even see with the Labour Party in Britain are really failing to my mind to grapple with the Brexit issue because a lot of Labour MPs are in areas in in, in north of England who voted in huge numbers to leave the European Union on the basis that it would curb immigration and and they're not really likely to to um to go against their own constituents views so it is deeply worrying. It hasn't made its way to Ireland. That doesn't mean it won't. Uh, and that's something we have to be very, very conscious of because I think we have a moral responsibility because of our history, because we're everywhere, because we're all over the world, because we're in every English-speaking world and uh, every every country in the world as Irish people, that we know the immigrant experience intimately. We are the people of coffin ships. We are the people who fled hunger, fled disease. We, we fled violence. We fled terrorism. We fled sectarianism. And so wherever we go, we have to we have to speak the language of the immigrants, and we have to we have to talk of the of, of the the life of the immigrants, and we have to because we're geographically situated between Trump and, and and Brexit, that we have to really be a guiding light for for a more common sense view. I, I would hate to fight a general election in the teeth of anti-immigrant uh, uh, rhetoric. I did it once. I did it in 2004, the first local election I ever I ever ran in. There was a citizenship referendum at the same time, and it was the most poisonous and the most nasty chapter in recent um, in recent uh, electoral history, in my view, because there was no need for that referendum. It didn't change anything. It didn't solve anything. But what it did do was to allow the lowest common denominator uh, to win the day, and uh, 78% of the Irish people on that day forgot their heritage, forgot who they were, and voted in. Uh, a very unnecessary and, and damaging amendment to the constitution, but that was 2004. I hope, I really hope we we, we never see that again. But I mean, there were situations of people, African Irish families, and polling stations being booed as they cast their vote in that local election. I mean, uh, I, I I hope uh, it's 14 years ago, but it's it's still it still rankles with me because it was it was my first time running in, in an election, and. Uh, uh, some of the um, emotions that it stirred were really, really, really troubling. Yeah, you, you, you know, you say it's 14 years ago, Aon, and, and that it was extremely divisive, but I think, you know, and, and I, 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 I don't want to, to end on, a, on a, a doom and gloom note, but I think that, you know, when we see what's happening, we saw it next door in Britain with, with Brexit and, of course, the refugee uh, card was played and played very strongly 
we see it across Europe, albeit Marie Le Pen was charged uh, recently with under the French version of our incitement to hatred act. But I just wonder, Ian, if you ran that again, would you get even stronger divisions in relation to, uh, well, you know, we look after our own first, which is a drum that you hear being beaten time and time and time again. Well, you know, I, I, I do have great faith in, in, in the heart of the Irish people. I think, you know, it was interesting when Balhadrine happened, when the re- refugees were, were mooted at moving to Balhadrine and, um, and the media landed up in Balhadrine and were able to find people saying inappropriate things or political representatives, you know, uh, sending out press releases saying how concerned they were about the lack of consultation, et cetera, et cetera, which is really a dog whistle for not here, thanks very much. But what was, what was really wonderful was that when they actually spoke to the people of Balladrine and went into the shops and went into the coffee shops and, and talked to people on the street, and one particular lady whose name escapes me but uh, was interviewed, and, and the reaction of the ordinary people of Balladrine was wonderful. Uh, and political representatives who previously had been talking about lack of consultation and concerns and all the rest which were then getting selfies of themselves in the centres talking to the uh, to, to the new residents of Balahadrine. So uh, I, I think once there is information and once there is an, uh, you know, an attempt to um, uh, you know, to engage with communities, you can be surprised. I think what's happening in this in Varna is, dif- is, is difficult to hear. Uh, I think um, people are using the cloak of uh, dissatisfaction with direct provision as a system uh, to to really uh, hide the fact that they just don't want uh, this new influx of people in their area. Uh, I think the Department of Justice have given up on the idea of consulting with local communities because consulting with local communities means that they just say no. So they can go through the process of consultation, but it just doesn't get anywhere. So they just are now in in, in the mindset of making a decision, choosing a centre, uh, moving people there, uh, and that's just that, and that's just the way it works. I don't think that necessarily, you know, helps uh, the process. But look, I I, I still have great um, great faith in in the experience of Irish people. Uh, that we that we will not go there, um, and I, I I just from my experience as a minister of state and dealing with different political parties, nobody really wants to go there, and that doesn't that doesn't mean that we you know we shouldn't have immigration law. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have uh, you know asylum law. Um, the, the achieving the, the achievement of of asylum status, the achieving of or the recognition of of a refugee status is is, is a sacred status. I mean, it's it's something that's that's recognised internationally. You don't hand somebody or grant somebody refugee status lightly. It's it, it's something that's 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 a very important uh, status to have. And um, you know, uh, on that basis, it's not something that we would give to anybody or grant to anybody unless it, it was fully deserved. So there will always be cases of people who come here seeking asylum who who will not get, who will not be granted that status, and that's all. That's that's just part of the uh, the process. But um, I I do think we we need to be fair. It is. It, it does go on me though that every St. Patrick's Day we go to we go to America and we ask the the American authorities to do things for the Irish that we won't do for the undocumented here. The the use of language is interesting. The fact that if you're illegal in America and you're Irish, 
they call you undocumented. But if you're illegal in Ireland from, from overseas, we call them illegal. Um, we have 26,000 undocumented workers here in Ireland. And we don't afford them the type of generosity that we would seek for our own undocumented in the in the in, in the states. So that that hypocrisy has has to end. Senator Aon O'Riordan, thank you so much for joining me on this afternoon's edition of Respect Words. It was intriguing to get an insight into, I suppose, Aon, the official side of it and uh, the government side and, and and how things are progressing. Thank you so much again for joining me this afternoon. Anytime, Donny. Respect. Sevome. Respeto. Spostuimo. Respect words. Ithiki dimosiografia ya tin adimetopisi tis ritorikis tumisos. Etichno novinarstvo proti sovrajnemu govoru. Il potere delle parole. Respect for Worten. Respect for Menschen gegen Hassreden. Atistalat hangian szólunk. Riportok, interjúk, tudósítások a gyűlöletbeszéd ellen. Mi becsüljük a másikat. Respect. La onda local de Andalucía contra los discursos de odio. Más or oco. Erisorg de ethical, equina kainta fuha. Ethical journalism against hate speech. Respect words. Respect words. Respect words. Respect words. Supported by the Rights, Equality and Citizenship Program of the European Union.